Hello, and welcome to another episode of Subaltern Speaks. Subaltern Speaks is a podcast created by the Multi-Faith Center at the University of Toronto for Spiritual Study and Practice, where we explore the legacies of colonialism across religions and spiritualities of colonized peoples, otherwise known as the subaltern in post-colonial studies. I'm your host, Christina, and today we, we will be unpacking Indigenous relations and spirituality within a decolonial lens and approach. In practicing collective care, some of the content might be triggering in this episode, so please ensure to prioritize self-care. Over the last several months, my academic research in Indigenous spirituality as it relates to Christianity, as well as cosmology as it relates to relationship building, as well as Afro-Indigenous relations and solidarity led me to several groups and platforms, including the Indigenous Education Network at OISE, or the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, as well as the Sojourners Magazine and Medicine for Resistance, a podcast that centers on Black and Indigenous relationship and is co-hosted by our guest today. Joining me on the Subaltern Speaks podcast from the Lack Soul First Nation is Anishinaabe and Ukrainian writer, Patty Krawick. Welcome, Patty, and thank you for joining me and sharing space today. Well, thank you for having me. This is really exciting. It's so great to have you here today. Um, let's just jump right in. Um, today, we'd like to unpack um, Western Christian theology as it impacts First Nations on Turtle Island. Before we do that, if you would just like to introduce yourself and some of the work that you're involved with. Sure. So, yeah, so I'm uh, from Laxville First Nation, uh, currently living in the Niagara region. Um, my kids are flung all over the country. They're <laughs> coast to coast to coast. Um, we joke. I mean, they're centered a little bit more now, but uh, yeah, they're all over the place. And I have a background in social work for 20 years. I worked um, with victims of sexual assault and then in child welfare. And then I recently retired from that and have since been writing and thinking and just kind of working through the different relationships that I find myself in, both as uh, on my maternal side, um, I'm the child of refugees who came to Canada in the 50s. On my father's side, I am the child of uh, Ojibwe Anishinaabe people from Northwestern Ontario. I have relationships with the church, with social work, with the Niagara region, with the far north. So just kind of holding all of these different relationships and thinking about these different things that I have inherited and what that means in terms of how, how I move through the world and how I understand how settler colonialism has positioned me in the world. So it's been really interesting the last couple of years working on my book and the podcast and how it has really reshaped the way I think about relationships and the different positions that I occupy in this world. Wow, that's so fascinating. Thank you for that. And congratulations on your new book, Becoming Kin, an yes. Indigenous Call to Unforgetting the Past and Reimagining Our Future. Uh, do you mind sharing the inspiration behind Becoming Kent and whether centering Anishinaabe cosmology, including prophecy of the seventh and eight fires to build relations with Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples on Turtle Island and or globally was a fundamental consideration in this project? For sure. So what happened, actually, I was sitting in church one day and the sermon was about identity. And... In my experience, when white men stand up to talk about identity, they really just need to sit right back down again. Um, 
you know, because it becomes this conversation about how we're all the same in Jesus. You know, there's no Jew, no Greek, no whatever, like everybody's the same. And that's nonsense. When I walk into the church, I don't stop being a woman. I don't stop being indigenous. I don't stop being the child of refugees. I don't stop being any of these things. And so I think that's a really narrow, narrow view of what Paul is talking about in that text. And I think it's it, it can be much more expansive than that. And, and so I was mad. I was really angry about the things that were said that morning. And after a conversation with a couple of friends, I wrote an article for Sojourners magazine about um, about the church and settlers finding home in a way that unhomed my father's people, you know, you know, my indigenous relatives and Mm -hmm. what that would mean, what that meant for our relationship in general, broadly speaking, as well as my relationship with the church. And then um, an acquisitions editor from Broadleaf approached me to see if I had thought about writing a book. And I sent it to a couple of friends to see if it was real (laughs) (laughs) because I hadn't been thinking about writing a book. Uh, But I certainly was then. I'd often said that, you know, we need the church needs to think through its its own theology and its own beliefs and its own, like how it got to where it is, because it's too easy to say, oh, those weren't real Christians or, oh, you know, Christians aren't really like that. Or, oh, those are bad Christians or that no no true Mm -hmm. Scotsman fallacy, right? Only a true Scotsman would eat his oatmeal or whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So those aren't true Christians. And to me, that's such a cop out. And you know, okay, so if your church didn't run residential schools, what did your theolo- argument, did your theology put up against it? Well, none. Mm-hmm. The theology of white Jesus allowed for all of this. Um, and so I've said that, you know, Christians need to be writing about this and thinking about this and talking about this. And then, I mean, you have to be careful when you say stuff like that, right? Because right. the universe says, okay, then do it. <laughs> And then that's, (laughs) you're right. It does need to happen and you're going to, you're going to do it. And uh, I mean, I'm certainly not the only person who's writing about these things. Um, There's a lot of people who are writing in in, in different ways, in different ways about this. But what I think is kind of unique about, about my book is it is about becoming kin. It's not just, you know, that angry, angry finger wagging about what the church is getting wrong. It's, is there another way you can understand your texts? Is there another way you can read these things so that we can be good relatives, which was always, which was always what was on offer from the moment the call, you know, the settlers came to stay, you know, the two row wampum, the dish, you know, the dish with one spoon treaty. Relationship and finding a way to live together in this place is always what was on offer. And so is there a way we can get back to that? Is there a way that we can become kin? Yes, indeed. Um, I I truly believe that, um, you know, the history of um, several European doctrines attributed, you know, to in the assimilation of indigenous peoples and the encroachment of land definitely attributes to having these types of doctrines this type of dialogue today um, in that um, unpacking what these relations look like and then, you know, leading to unpacking um, relations with community and Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. And if I could be a little bit more specific and get into a little bit of the historical context, um, during the 15th to 19th century, 
the right of preemption to indigenous territory was facilitated by these European doctrines, such as terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery to claim sovereignty of, of Turtle Island, which was indeed premised on racial, cultural, and religious supremacy, rather, of European Christian nations. And as many of us are aware, these doctrines empowered the church and state in the cultural genocide, land theft, and assimilation of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples that led um, to deepened loss of languages and ancestral teachings and cultural upbringings that are central to Indigenous relations. Um, can you describe um, how Western Christian theology direct, directly impacted your life in the temporal loss of relations with family, community, and relations? Yeah, well, I mean, at the most obvious level, my uncles went to residential schools. That was, you know, that was something that happened in Canada for a little over 100 years. The last one didn't close. And I often say the last resident, the Fresh Prince left Bel Air before the last mm. residential school closed in Canada. You know, so it was just that just makes it feel so much so present. Like, like we talk about residential schools as if they were something that happened a very long time ago and they weren't. Um, I live in Niagara and in my book, I talk about a trip to the mush hole. I took a trip to the mush hole as a social worker with uh, with a social worker student and we toured it and it closed in 1970. It's in uh, Brantford, Ontario, which is you know maybe two hours from my house. And it closed in 1970, I was five. When when that when that closed, and you know, and then residential schools continued on in Canada for another twenty six years. And my uncles mm -hmm. attended those schools. My father did not. Um, long story about how he lost his Indian status because a uh, band manager was mad at his mother. Um, but that kind of stuff happened too. <laughs> All yes. of a sudden, he wasn't an Indian anymore. Um, so. So they went. And then, of course, my mom was a teacher. She went up to northern Ontario uh, as to teach. And although she didn't teach in a residential school, it was part of that process of, you know, white teachers teaching Native kids. And when my parents separated, she brought me down south, which severed all of those relationships with my maternal mm. family. And I don't know if she tried to keep contact with them and they rebuffed her attempts or if there was no attempt or anything. And so then that also separated me from my family. And I was raised in an evangelical family. Um, you know, so all of that, you know, the James Dobson and, and John MacArthur and all of those people. Uh, so, right. and that shapes how you think of yourself and the disconnection because Christianity is a very, unmoored religion right it's disconnected from place it, you know um you know and, and and i talk about that in, in the original article as well as my book how it's it's disconnected from really anywhere and then it works to disconnect us all and make us all kind of rootless and thinking about our home in heaven and disconnected from the world around us and from each other it's just, yeah, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was just really rambly and I'm not even sure I answered your question <laughs> because all I can really think about is, in that regard is, is the impact of the residential schools and those disconnected relationships. Yes, the, the history of residential schools certainly still continues um, to have 
a major impact on indigenous peoples um, across Turtle Island um, and as well in, in other parts of the world where um, similar structures of violence uh, were implemented, um, like such as in England. Like you said, like you taught, like in, uh, the English used it on the Irish and the Welsh kids, you, you know, Canada and the US used it on, on indigenous kids. Separating kids from their families is like a winning colonial strategy. It works. And mm -hmm. you separate the kids, you indoctrinate them. Like a lot of a lot of native communities are deeply conservatively Christian, mm -hmm. you know, to the point that I've made ribbon skirts and I made a ribbon skirt for a young woman for whom wearing a skirt in her own community would be an act of resistance. Right. She wanted to wear it to graduate and she wasn't even sure if she'd be able to wear it at home because it would be seen as this pagan thing. Um, you know, sweat lodges and moon ceremonies are, are still disrupted. And that's a legacy of residential schools. You know, we having, you know, having the beliefs now down here in Niagara, you know, that's not, that's not a big deal at all. Like it's not even uncommon to see churches welcoming, you, you know, smudging ceremonies and things like that. Philip Cote mm -hmm. has done, uh, you know, some beautiful murals in uh, Toronto churches, you know, kind of pulling the two cultures together, but in Northern Ontario, and this is, you know, I, I support a number of things um, through my foundation in Northern Ontario, in part to offset the, you know, the harms of what the church has done up there, particularly um, with two-spirit and queer youth, how isolated and, and, you know, the message that they get is just so destructive. And so many of these things are connected to charity, charity, which is badly needed, you know, food banks, soup kitchens, mm -hmm. you know, medical assistance, all of those things. It's very badly, badly needed, but it comes packaged with this terrible toxic theology around two-spiritedness and gayness. And, you know, and, and so my foundation tries to help and do what it can, but it's not, it's not very big, you know, it's so I work hard and maybe that's part of a reaction to my own upbringing, recognizing the harms that I may have, contri have contributed to, mm -hmm. and then wanting to do what I can to mitigate those harms now, understanding that what that that what I had been part of in the past was harmful and wanting to do something about it now. So yeah. But. And I, I think that really speaks to, I mean, um within your um identity as a Nishnabi and Ukrainian woman, just really acknowledging also too, you know, we hold these um positions of privilege um in terms of being able to um just unpack, you know, the legacies that have impacted the lives of First Nations people across up across this country. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, in my academic um, study is, you know, we, we see to, I see to rather um, discuss like collective care and collective access and, and how that can be um, redistributed um, in terms of ensuring that all people, particularly First Nations, Métis, and Inuit across this country have equal access, you know, to healthcare, to education, um, and to cultural programming, because that is, is, is still, there's still a gap there. Um, you know, we have these legal uh, doc doctrines of reconciliation that, that spell out um, how we can begin to reconcile 
um, indigenous relations between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, but then yet there still continues to be this gap in terms of ensuring that the, you know, the distribution of funding is, is there because we continue to see, you know, disparities across this country in terms of ongoing water, um, water, boiling water advisories, um, ongoing lack, lack of access to healthcare, um, and, and education. And so, um, for me as a student, um, that's, that's where, that's what really informs my, my work and, and my study is ensuring that, um, we can really just best amplify the voices of, of indigenous peoples and as our allies, um, to ensure that, um, access is provided across the board. And, you know, when you were just speaking about, um, you know, um, advocating uh, against protection of harm for um, two-spirited peoples. Perhaps I can um, ask how it is your advocacy towards um, the legal, spiritual, and cultural protections of two-spirited peoples and the LGBTQIA community influence your writing, if any, and, uh, and your community engagement? Well, yeah, I mean, I think about how... I think about how they're being impacted by different policies and, you know, the things, the things that I'm writing about, I use social media very intentionally to make mm -hmm. sure that I'm following people who I may not, you know, come across regularly in my daily life, but also it can be some, you know, so when I'm, I'm writing, I'm thinking about making sure that I'm considering how things impact two spirited people through, I have through the podcast, and then I had a year-long book club uh, series of panels that I created to talk about Indigenous literatures throughout the year. I made sure that we didn't have to be talking about, you know, queer things in order to make sure that I had queer panelists on, right? Like, I don't mm -hmm. want to be around to talk only about, you know, Indigenous things. Every issue is an Indigenous issue. And so every mm -hmm. issue is a queer issue. Every issue is a disability issue. All of these things impact people. I was really struck. I read a, a blog by Lynn Gell, and she talks about the turtle principle. And you get behind the turtle. So who is the slowest moving? Who is experiencing the most harm in this moment? Get behind that person. If that person is okay in your church, in your, you, you know, in, in your protest, in your policy that you're developing, if the most impacted person is okay, everybody else will be, okay. mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> be, you know, so you, so I, I try really hard to do that. And it's even as simple as I belong to a hand drum group and we were starting to get asked to perform at events, to, um, you, you know, participate in ceremony. And I noticed that one of our members was often holding back, you know, not sitting in the circle, you know, for the ceremony. When I say it happened one time, um, <laughs> And it was because, and it was because she doesn't wear a skirt. Uh, she's two spirit, and some it's it's not like a blanket thing. Oh, you know, there's a lot of two spirited people who do wear skirts, and there's a lot of complicated reasons why Indigenous women may not want to wear a skirt. You, you know, um, when I think back about how Woodlands people existed, you know, 400 years ago, an ankle length skirt is not practical for the Northern Woodlands. <laughs> right. Caught on everything, right? So, the, so the ankle length skirt is clearly a colonial, um, you know, a co colonial adaptation, something that we've done. 
but it's still, it's become part of our ceremony that you, you know, women wear skirts to ceremony. And so we talked about that um, myself and another woman in, in the drum group say, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to, are we going to be somebody that includes or excludes? Is this woman going to have to sit outside the circle or are we going to adapt ourselves so that she doesn't have to? And what we decided on was that the fundamental teaching of the Nishnabe cosmology is one of community and relation. And if our traditions cause somebody to be excluded, then those traditions need to change. Mm-hmm. And so we had kind of adopted a policy in our group that skirts were admired, but not required. Right. And, you know, and then we had a pipe, there was a pipe ceremony, um, you know, several months later. And I asked the elder who was leading that ceremony, I said, look, you know, this one, you know, member would like to come, but is there a skirt requirement? And, and he said, well, everybody will assume she's too spirited. She doesn't wear one. Like his only concern was that people would assume she was too spirited, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and is she okay with that? Is she okay with effectively outing herself in the community? And I like, yeah, it's, it's not going to be a problem. Um, you, you know, so it's important internally that we have those conversations about who's being included, who's being excluded, thinking through our traditions and our ceremonies. And some of these conversations are also very familiar within the church as well. Um, you, you know, having, you know, about who's included, who's welcome, who's just being tolerated. Nobody wants to be tolerated, you know, <laughs> as opposed right. to just being welcomed and accepted. And so when I write, when I participate in things, when I speak, I try very hard to remember who is out there and are they being harmed by what I'm saying? And I don't always get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. I exclude people or I, you know, I make mistakes and then it's being willing to listen to that when somebody says, okay, that thing you said was really good, but wow, ouch, you could have phrased it better. Right. You know, or you, you really ignored this that you were, you know, and, and so I try really hard to be open to hearing that from people because the, the Nishnabeg vision is so expansive, like so big and so welcoming and you know our our kinship relationships are are you know kind of huge networks that I, I think you know compared to citizenship right which is just so narrow and tightly defined you know kinship relationships cross all of these boundaries and you know so I want to model that in what I do it's I grew up in a very tightly defined world mm-hmm. and I don't want I don't want to carry that forward into my Anishinaabeg relationships. I want to leave that behind. Yes. One of the, one of the things that, um, that really resonated with me um, in the Medicine for Resistance podcast is um, that, you know, relations are, are not linear and um, that there's this ongoing process of unlearning and, un- and learning colonial harm. Um, and it, and it's, it's apparent is different for every single person, um, because it is an ongoing process of healing and, um, and it, it impacts, um, you know, worldviews, women's empowerment, um, two-spirited, um, relations, addressing inter- intergenerational harm, um, and disrupting, you know, those cycles of colonial violence that, for for many for many people um are still you know struggling to unpack that because 
they're not quite detached from, you know, the assimilation that was inflicted by the church. Perhaps I'd like to maybe discuss a little bit about, you know, reconciliation and what reconciliation means and how you might view um, the reconciliation of, you know, taking the first step to apologize um, of the church and to accept responsibility for the wrongdoing, because that is that is the first step in reconciliation. Um, we know that in, in 2015 in Bolivia, you know, the Pope offered an apology to Indigenous peoples of America by acknowledging the failures of the church, um, including, quote, many grave sins that were committed against Native peoples of America in the name of God, end quote. Um, in 2018, the Canadian Parliament asked the Pope to apologize to residential school survivors, for which the Pope declined. And subsequently in 2021, the Pope expressed his, quote, sorrow, um, which frankly is not good enough. It's not an apology um, for the ongoing, ongoing rather recovery of Indigenous children in burial grounds uh, of residential schools across this country. He has yet to offer an apology to residential school survivors uh, for the physical and cultural genocide and close to 100 residential schools run by the Catholic Church. So I'm interested to know, um, Patty, what is your view of the refusal of the Pope to apologize um, and to initiate reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada and delay no further the healing of thousands of survivors and families? And perhaps we can discuss um, land acknowledgements um, later on, because I'm interested to know if where land acknowledgements, um, are they appropriate? Um, in, in terms of reconciling relations um, when federal title has, is still not upheld. So I know it's a bit of a two-part question, but just it's a lot to think about and please share what you'd like to. No, well, I, I appreciate that. And I'm actually gonna tie those two things together because to me, they, they're, they're very connected. And I think a big part of it is that indigenous peoples, you know, and I think any, you, you know, those of us who have been marginalized in different ways, think of apology much different than the Western colonial, you know, particularly the church does. Like you said, it's the first step. It's the first, you know, it's the first moment where you admit that something is wrong and something needs to change. And I think, I think for the church, Protestant and Catholic, it's the last step. And they, you know, and it's this, you know, and I kind of kind of reach backwards into my evangelical upbringing, you know, it's the sinner's prayer, right? I acknowledge, I acknowledge that I've sinned and I get forgiven and boom, grace has made mm -hmm. it east as far as the east from the west and whatever. It's all gone. It's all over. It's all done. And, you know, so we hear these apologies, you know, we're very sorry for the bad thing that happened to the indigenous people, um, you know, whether it's the Canadian <clears throat> excuse me, the Canadian government or the Pope or, you know, or different churches, but I've noticed they still have the land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, they're very sorry, but they still have the land, yeah. you know, and, and the archbishop, I think it was the archbishop in Toronto who had, he had said that the church, the reason the church couldn't apologize for what happened in residential schools was each diocese operates independently. And so you know, so each diocese would have to apologize for the residential school that happened within their borders. And that is just nonsense. I mean, the mm -hmm. Catholic Church is so completely hierarchical that, you know, this is absolutely the Pope's responsibility. 
but if you're going to acknowledge responsibility, then you have to take action to make things right. And you can't give back the children, but you can give back the land. Yeah. The Catholic church can give back the land. You know, the Presbyterian church can give back the land. You know, all any, any church that is sorry can give back the land. And mm-hmm. imagine there's a thought exercise in, in my book um, where I'm talking about, you know, uh, you know, because I've talked about land acknowledgements and I do see them as a beginning. If you're willing to make that a beginning to recognize whose land you're on and to think through your relationship with those people, then yes, do it. And if you have no relationship, then say that in your land acknowledgement. Say, mm-hmm. I understand that this is the land of the Mississauga and the Schnabig. I don't have a relationship with them and I'm going to do something about that. I am this, and these are the steps that I'm going to take. This is the thing I'm going to do in order to develop relationship because we're everywhere, right? Like there's, there's, you, you know, there's reserves everywhere. There's friendship centers everywhere. Um, so we're not that hard to find. Um, <laughs> you know, you can build relationships with us. You can show up to events and offer to help wash dishes. You can volunteer and make friends that way. But there's a thought exercise in, in the book where I say, you know, think if, if you deeded the land back to you know, the, the, the people of your area. So, you know, if you're in Toronto, you know, it may be the Mississauga Anishinaabeg. Um, you know, if you deeded the land back to them and then, which there is a process, you can do that, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, and then with an agreement that you would then lease it from them because you've got this church building or this university or, you know, like whatever, you've got all these buildings that are already there and you want to keep using them. So you make the agreement that you're going to give them back the land and you're going to lease it from them. You're going to do like a one-year lease or a five-year lease or, you know, a 20-year lease. How are you now motivated to not be evicted? Right. Because your lease is going to come due, whether it's a one-year, five-year, 10-year lease that you've signed, that you've agreed to. It's going to come due. And now how are you motivated to adapt your relationships, your policies, your priorities, to make sure that when your lease comes due, you don't get evicted. Everything changes. It certainly does. Everything changes. And so if the church is so sorry, if, you know, if if the organization is so sorry, if they're willing to acknowledge that they're on Indigenous land, then give it back. Give it back. That's, it's not that hard. (laughs) It can be done. And then you can lease the property and keep using your buildings. But if if you're not willing to even entertain the idea of giving the land back, then what's the point of apologizing? What's the point of acknowledging? What's the point of any of these things? If you're not even willing to entertain the notion. But that shows the Catholic Church's priorities, right? There's a lot of wealth tied up in it. And, I, and, you know, I think that if the Catholic Church would really take responsibility and take the first step in apologizing and, and accepting responsibility for the atrocities and the cultural genocide inflicted by the residential school, um, it will encourage um, individual churches to implement their own um, forms of, you know, towards reconciliation and, and expanding on um, building relations with Indigenous peoples collectively. Um, we're talking about, um, when we're talking about land and the land, you know, ceded as, quote, crown land, 
we're speaking about close to 90% of Canadian territory with only 0.2% that's allocated uh, to reserves. Um, so I, I totally agree. And, and thank you so much for, for sharing uh, your viewpoints on this because I, I've been very um, skeptical myself, you know, even in working on this podcast and introducing um, the podcast with a land acknowledgement. Yes, it is a, a, a decolonization effort, but then considering that the Canadian state um, really has shown no interest in uh, returning federal title to Indigenous peoples in this country um, makes me very hesitant um, to, to um, state or um, a, a land acknowledgement just because we can do our part, but then I am a settler and I, I um, uphold a position of privilege and um, I don't want to be complacent um, in, in that type of behavior where the state is just refusing um, to return the land. And I know that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada um, has included this as part, as, as one of the calls to action among, you know, the 94 calls to action of nulling the, the, the doctrines of terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery. Um, and developing a new understanding of the Royal Proclamation to reaffirm nation-to-nation -nation building between Indigenous peoples and the state. Thanks for joining me on part one of this episode on Indigenous relations and spirituality from a decolonial approach. In our next episode, we will continue part two of this conversation where Patty and I discuss reconciliation by the repatriation of land and unpack the disparities in social and public services for Indigenous peoples on Turtle Island, as well as the impact of cultural competency training and programming across public and private sectors. In the interim, I'd like to thank you for joining me on part one of this episode. And as always, head to Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, Apple, or Google Podcasts to tune into our latest episodes. Please be sure to join us for part two of this series. Until then, be safe and thanks for joining us.